I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in T.O., a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, you may work hard, but Toronto's automated speed enforcement cameras work harder. They are making our streets safer, they're bringing in much-needed revenue, and they don't care who you are. You could work for the city, you could drive a TTC bus. If you're speeding, they'll get you. But if a city worker gets dinged with a ticket, who's paying? Plus, you know the phrase measure twice, cut once, right? It's a good reminder to take the time and double check your measurements and make sure they're accurate before you take any irreversible actions. Like, I don't know, potentially building a skyscraper in the middle of a busy flight path. You'll also learn more about the largest and busiest airport in Canada that opened 85 years ago under a different name. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. You may work hard, but these automated speed enforcement cameras, they work harder. A few years ago, Toronto installed 75 ASEs, Automated Speed Enforcement Cameras. They're throughout the city, three in every ward, on arterial roads in community safety zones, although they do rotate every six months or so to keep it fresh. Now, according to a release from the city that came out over the summer, the ASE program has been effective in significantly reducing the number of people speeding and overall vehicle speeds, which the city says points to increased compliance and improved driver behavior. The study was conducted by researchers from SickKids Hospital in collaboration with Toronto Metropolitan University. And looking at the data from January 2020 to December 2022, it found that the proportion of people speeding in 30, 40, and 50 kilometer per hour zones dropped, representing an overall reduction of 45% in areas with an ASE device. Now, when the devices were active in these zones, the study also found that the overall operating speed of vehicles dropped about 7 kilometers per hour, and the percentage of drivers exceeding the speed limit decreased at 80% of the locations. And excessive speeding, driving over the speed limit by 20 clicks per hour or more, also went down by 87%. So, all in all, it sounds like the program is working as intended to increase road safety, reduce speeding, and raise public awareness. However, there is another piece to this, perhaps an unintended benefit. These ASE cameras are also big revenue generators for the city of Toronto. And last week, City Council proposed doubling their fleet of these little speed narc revenue robots from 75 to 150. Now, in the first two years of this program, nearly 600,000 tickets were doled out. That's thousands each and every month. And fines range in price depending on the speed. But city staff say as much as $34 million in fines are on the table. That's assuming people pay their tickets. Now, you won't lose any demerit points, but if you are traveling more than 50 kilometers per hour above the limit, a summons is issued to the registered owner of the vehicle 
to appear in court. The registered owner of the vehicle, eh? So what happens when the registered owner of a vehicle is the Toronto Transit Commission or the city of Toronto proper? Who pays then? This was a question that plagued global news reporter Matt Carty. He was up at night, tossing and turning, waking up in a cold sweat, screaming out into the darkness, who is paying for this? Why? That may be a slight exaggeration, but the man was curious. Do they get caught by these speed cameras? And if so, what happens? And how often does it happen? So Matt Carty went to the source. He reached out to the city of Toronto and the TTC to try and get some answers. The TTC says there's around 15 violations per month on average for their entire fleet of vehicles. So not only does it include all the buses, but they also have a bunch of other vehicles, you know, the the repair vehicles, the repair trucks, the supervisors, they drive around in a vehicle as well. So 15 violations per month, that's, you know, almost one every other day. It's quite a lot. It, it, it adds up. Around 15 violations are issued per month for all TTC vehicles, which includes roughly 1,600 buses and 200 non-revenue vehicles. Now, when he posed the same question to the city, they replied via email that in 2022, the number of speed camera tickets issued to the city, not including TTC vehicles, was 182. So far in 2023, it stands at 99. But remember, when I said these tickets are mailed out based on the registered owner of the vehicle, who's paying the fine? Both the City of Toronto and the TTC said the driver behind the wheel in the vehicle caught speeding will ultimately end up paying the fine. The TTC didn't get into a lot of details about how that works, but the city was a little more forthcoming with uh, that information. So the division in charge of all of the city's vehicles will just pay the fine as soon as they get it to avoid any late fees. The division will then um, take the money they just paid for that ticket from the city division that the offending employee works in, and then it's up to that division to approach the driver and say, hey, you got to pay up. According to the city, there are ticket handling guidelines that include written warnings, a driver interview, education, remedial training, testing, review by the Internal Driver Safety Board, and suspension of a city driving permit. But that all sounds quite expensive, too. And who do you think's paying for that? On the way, I believe that Premier Doug Ford thinks he's a bit of a Don Corleone. But really, he's more of an Oprah during one of her iconic giveaway shows. What's he giving away this time and to whom? You'll find out after this. You know, I think Premier Doug Ford wants to be like Don Corleone in The Godfather. You know, with all this talk about the day his daughter's to be married. Excuse me. Uh, But honestly, he's more like Oprah in the way he's been handing out MZOs or ministers zoning orders. You get an MZO and you get an MZO and so on and so forth. And if you're wondering why you're still hearing about this wedding, there's something new to it. The opposition, the Ontario NDP, crunched some numbers, and they found that just four guests at a Ford family wedding reception benefited from as many MZOs as previous liberal governments issued in total over the course of their 15 years in power. 
Basically, what this means is that the Ford government has handed out at least 110 fast-track approvals since 2019. By contrast, previous liberal governments issued just 18 between 2003 and 2018. Now, you may be asking, what exactly is an MZO? Here's Global's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Colin DeMello. An MZO is a controversial tool that a government can use to basically override a municipality, right? So if a municipality is maybe um, dilly-dallying on a particular piece of property, the government can use an MZO to essentially fast-track a development by skipping over a lot of the normal steps and processes that a particular development application has to has to go through. The government, the Ford government always says that they only issue MZOs at the request of city councils, but it, it, there are many cases in which the, the government has issued MZOs to, you know, circumvent city councils, essentially, uh, with or without their approval, the government can railroad uh, a city council and really ram through a particular development. So an MZO is kind of like a paint roller. It'll get the job done quickly. You can cover a lot of area in a short amount of time. But when you get to those little corners or edges, that's when it serves you better to have a smaller paintbrush, even though it might take more time. And time is really not on our side. As I mentioned, the Ford government has handed out more than 100 fast-track approvals since 2019, where the previous liberals issued just 18 in 15 years. And maybe you're saying, that checks out. The liberals didn't build enough housing when they were in power. And Ford's got to get 1.5 million homes built like yesterday. But you know the phrase, measure twice, cut once? Of course you do. It's an age-old adage, and it's a reminder to take the time to double-check your measurements and to make sure they're accurate before you take any irreversible actions. And so these special minister's zoning orders are meant for situations of extraordinary urgency because they can override local planning authorities to approve development without expert analysis, public input, or any chance of appeal. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, MZOs can be very useful tools to have at your disposal, but without input or expert analysis, someone might, let's say, try to build a 50-story skyscraper in the middle of a busy flight path in Mississauga. We're lucky the province is also really good at walking things back, and they did this pretty quietly over the summer so they would not alert the journalists who found out anyway. Isaac Callen is an online digital reporter for Global News. They are a very, very blunt, but also very effective tool in terms of speeding up the planning process because they take out so many of the early stages. They take out the sorts of parts of the planning process that tie local councils up mm-hmm. in months of engagement. Things like you know shadow studies and four or five public meetings over the location of a building. And in certain situations, they were seen and this is not a this is not a pc planning tool this is a tool that was used by the the liberal government as well before but much much more rarely um there are situations where governments have argued fairly convincingly that it's needed to break the logjam say you know a local resident group perhaps is so opposed to a project Mm -hmm. and so well organized despite it having planning merit that they're holding it up in bureaucracy forever what the ford government is accused of doing particularly by the opposition is using it just to speed up any project that it wants to get moving fast, whether or not it has gone through the planning process. And the MZO in Mississauga is an interesting example because the developer, Kenneth, 
hadn't really started its process with the city at all, we understand, when it went to the province to get the MZO. So it wasn't that they'd been stuck in years of planning back and forth over this tower that happens to have been an emergency flight path. It was that they basically just went straight to Queen's Park and said, can you speed this up for us? And those are the kind of uses of the MZO that are getting the most criticism because it doesn't appear to be about just speeding up local planning. Critics would say it's just about skipping the process altogether. I can appreciate the need to speed up certain projects, but what good is a fast track if for every step forward, you got to take two steps back? Pearson Airport was forced to basically take the province aside and say, sorry, you've, you've approved a building in a flight path, um, which is, is going to be a problem for us. And I think the other thing about this, and we're, we're getting a little inside baseball, but the areas around Pearson Airport are considered airport operation zones. And they have a whole set of local planning tools around them anyway, not just the emergency flight path elements, but issues with noise and um, industrial, you know, lots of logistics that govern the areas around the airport, which local municipal planning staff tend to know like the back of their hand, but is the sort of thing that staff at the Ministry of Housing might be less familiar with because they're not the local planners. So I think that's one of the other examples with this particular project is the local planning rules that are in place for this area likely would have knocked this on the head much earlier on because they're designed to deal with these sorts of requests and these sorts of issues. Also, should we be concerned that the province is handing out so many ministers' zoning orders? When should they be used to maximize their effectiveness? Are there any sort of guidelines to make this clearer or to make the system work better? It's just designed for when the local planning process is perceived to have failed or to have slowed things down to the point they they can't be built. And that's where this tool is more complicated because it doesn't really have a codified set of times that it should be used or shouldn't be used. For example, originally the province said that it would only be using the NZO tool if local councils approved it. They were basically saying if local councillors come to us and say they can't get this built as quickly as they would like, we'll do it for them. So a couple of years ago, Mississauga wanted to build a film studio and the land it was in didn't have the right zoning and the builder for the studio was basically ready to go. And so local council asked the province, could you step in, override the planning to allow this film studio to get on the road quicker because it will create local jobs for us. So I think that's one of the examples of how the NZO tool is sort of meant to be used, as it were, in localized. But then about a year and a half later, um, a, an NZO was issued for Lakeview Village, a 16,000 unit development on the waterfront in Mississauga. And that NZO was issued without city council ever asking for it or even being told that it was going to come. Hmm. And technically, both those uses of the tool are allowed under the Planning Act. So there's a lot of room for interpretation, a room for your, room for your own personal views, your political um, agenda or your, your kind of uh, understanding of the planning process, really. It's a very, very powerful, very, very broad tool that doesn't really have a playbook. Moving on and on the topic of airports and flight paths, did you know that Toronto Pearson, if that is your real name, has five runways, two passenger terminals, and several many cargo and maintenance facilities on a site that covers more than 4,600 acres. And your flight may not leave on time, but Canada's largest and busiest airport has some weird bragging rights. With more on that, here's producer Glenn Bergonier. Actually, Danny, it had two different names before settling on Pearson International Airport, and that's also before it became the largest airport in Canada. It actually had a much more humble beginning that started off with some farmland. Back in 1937, the city of Toronto purchased 570 hectares of land from farmers in Malton, 
and constructed the precursor to Toronto International, which was instead called Malton Airport because it was in Malton. I know it's pretty on the nose, but it works and let's just keep going. The first iteration of this airport was very simple. One building made out of wood that served as Terminal 1, one grassy landing strip, and two tarmac runways. And that's about it. At least that was about it until the start of the Second World War. By that time, it was used as a flying and observer school as well as an airport. And it really did begin to grow as it saw over 400,000 passengers each year. By 1958, the airport had grown and so had the city of Toronto, so it sold off the land to the federal government, which renamed it from Malton Airport to Toronto International Airport. Just as much as the name made sense, clearly someone wasn't a fan of it, because by 1984, the name changed one final time to Pearson International Airport to honor our 14th Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson. And now we jump ahead to more of the modern day. Pearson International is the largest international airport in all of Canada, the second largest in all of North America, only second to John F. Kennedy International in New York, and the 30th largest in the world. And like Danny mentioned previously, Pearson growing meant that we got some weird bragging rights. For example, Terminal 1 is the 12th largest terminal in the world based off of square footage. And let's not also forget that in Terminal 1 is the Dreisenkrupp Express Walkway, which I just learned is the world's fastest moving walkway. And I never even realized that was a thing. And possibly one of its most notable feats, especially if you're a classic rock fan, is its tie to Rush. The identifier code for Pearson International is YYZ, which is possibly the most famous song by Rush, and is actually why Pearson International is opening a Rush-themed specialty bar within Terminal 1. So just keep in mind that it started off with just three runways and a wooden structure, and slowly but surely grew to have five runways, 30 taxiways, multiple terminals, over 75 airlines that serve over 180 destinations across six continents, and in its peak before the pandemic kind of ruined everything, Pearson International was seeing over 50 million passengers in 2019 pass through its doors. And possibly one of the most unique parts of Pearson International is this odd blend it has of amazing you and disappointing you all in the same go. But really the disappointment plays in if they lost your luggage or your flight was delayed or so forth. But on the good news, if your flight is delayed from now on, while you're not rushing, you can have a drink at the Rush Bar. Yeah, see what I did there? I'm hilarious. My wish for you this week is that for every step forward, you then take another step forward. And if you get too tired, just hop on the moving walkway, but please watch your speed. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Chris Dunner and Andrew Durnford are advisors to the show. You should know by now that we'll have a brand new episode for you next Wednesday, so I hope you'll join me again. Till then, have a cozy week, and we'll chat again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>